Welcome in. It's The Reason Radio. I am Evan Shamblin, alongside my good friend Nick Arthur. How are we doing, Nick? Fantastic. We are coming to you on, a, on June 1st, a Wednesday night. We, uh, we had to catch up yesterday after that, uh, that long holiday weekend. You getting into anything on the, on the holiday weekend, Nick? You know, I had a good, had a good holiday weekend. I went to the lake. Um, I uh, did some fishing, did some kayaking, uh, enjoyed the weather, and uh, had a real good time. Uh, well, that's great, but now we sit here refreshed, and I wanted to, uh, as far as what we're talking about, I want to jump back in and kind of recap where we left off um, on the last podcast to where we are now. So last podcast, which was last Monday, we were at a point where the Thunder were up 2-1, to one, and they were playing game four, and you had said that you thought the Thunder would win, and your prediction was correct. The Thunder absolutely blew them out in a game that we all thought the uh, the Warriors desperately need to go up 3-1. I mean, at that point, in complete control of this series. I mean, I think Complete control. I mean, they, they figured them out, man. These, these weren't close games. These were blowouts. These, like, these were Steph Curry sitting over there five minutes left in the game because he couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. They were so far out in front. I mean – it it Steven Adams looked like a star. Twenty four I mean, point blowout in game four. I mean it was it was stunning. It, the Warriors looked done. Um I mean I I was telling you that at this point I thought they should bench Draymond Green because he was so awful. Those two games I believe he was his plus minus was negative seventy three. I literally asked you if I could do worse out on the court. Now obviously I could do worse, but you know, it that's about as bad as you can be for a guy who had just made announced last week second team all NBA to mm-hmm. be that awful in mm-hmm. those games. So at that point we all thought it was you know it was just time. And everybody kind of did the same thing. We said, okay, Warriors will go home and they'll take game they'll take game five because it's game five. Um but everybody thought it'd be over when they returned for game six. So they went home, they took care of business. There was really nothing to do. It was game. a close game. It was a close game. They went into the fourth in that in game uh this was game five. They went into the fourth quarter up four, and they ended up winning by nine, and it took a 40-point fourth quarter for them to do that. And that's what we were talking about. After that game, I think we both agreed on, we were actually more impressed with the Thunder again. Durant um, had 40, Westbrook had 31. They, they looked good. They played well. Um, it was just kind of the desperate need of the Warriors pulled it out in the end. But when we sat down, the Warriors hadn't figured it out. It was weird. Like, I was sitting there watching that game with the team that won 73 games in the regular season, most explosive offense. They had a 12-point lead in the second half, and I'm nervous for them. Like, like it could go away in just a second because they just didn't feel like them. So headed into game six, I think I'm, I'm pretty much sharing everybody's feelings. We all thought it was over, man. I mean, except for the Bay Area, we all think, thought that. I think heading into the last 12 minutes of game six, we all thought it was over. Yeah, they, they looked great. I mean, and they, they kept them away the all of game six. And then there's a guy who happens to be the second best shooter on this planet, right behind the guy who's the unanimous MVP. Clay Thompson goes off for 41 in game six. I mean, absolutely clutch. 11 threes. 11 threes. That was so awesome to watch. I mean, everything he shot went. You know, this is something weird that I noticed, but it – the way they won that game, I'm glad because of the fact it was Clay Thompson who propelled them there, that it was another three ball that he shot that gave them the lead. 
I just thought that was fitting because he was the guy who absolutely kept him in. I mean, he took shots. He wasn't even looking at the hoop. Like, he just knew he was going to fire because he was feeling it. I mean, I, I would love to have one day where I'm absolute hot, where everything goes. Everything. You know, and, and you're looking at game six, and obviously the the Warriors outscored by 15, like you alluded to. They come back and win it. And you're looking at the stats from that game, and it's like if I would have told you with Thunder in complete control of the series that, you know, the Warriors would go into game six in Oklahoma City after being blown out in both games in OKC um, so far in the series, only three Warriors players would score in w- double figures. They would get out-rebounded by seven. They would miss ten free throws. Would you think they would have any chance of winning that game? No. They had no. three guys in double figures. Only two people scored off their bench. Uh, it was Livingston didn't score. Most Bates didn't score. No, Bosa didn't score. Bogan it had was... five. And honestly, the crazy thing about it is, I didn't even feel like they were desperate until the second half. Like I thought we'd play the whole game with them being desperate. Really, they Clay Thompson kept them there close enough to catch up, and then when they got, they actually went into desperate mode. It worked out for them. So it. You know, I don't know if you saw it, but the change, and I think the story of this whole series um, for both teams was ball movement. I mean, rebounding is a close second, but, I mean, the team that had the better ball movement on offense won. And what happened is on the last 13 possessions of that game for the Thunder, 12 of them, they had one pass. So what's that tell you? That's Westbrook and Durant just taking shots, which they can take and make shots. They're superstars. But the offense was flowing way better when they moved it around. And they went to, you know, the quote-unquote hero ball, which for me, I go both ways on because I get – here's what we do. I mean, it's such an easy stance. It's, you know, great ball movement. Durant's kicking it around. They got the lead. This is working. The minute they go behind, okay, Durant's not shooting enough. He needs to shoot enough. Okay, so then Durant starts passing. He's making all these shots. They fall behind. He's like, oh, now he's playing hero ball. So nothing that Durant and Westbrook could do um, was, was is good enough. But I think we kind of saw um, just them kind of fall apart at the end of that game six. Durant or Westbrook had four turnovers in the last minute, 29, even though this is one of my pet peeves, minor pet peeve, and I think you'll agree with me. I hate that we can go back and watch a replay 5,000 times to see if a ball went out of bounds. And every time we look at it, it's a foul. I mean, Westbrook got fouled on one of those turnovers, and it would it could very well change the outcome of the game because he had been going to the free throw line for two instead of giving the ball back right. to the Warriors where they scored. But that's not really the point. But they seemed to get out of rhythm at the end of game six. And now, now we're headed back to Golden State, and I think everybody's flipped. Everybody's going Golden State. You know, for me personally, you said that, you know, you still believed in the Thunder. Um, you, you told me you – didn't think they'd win originally if they went back to uh, to Golden State, but they played so well that you know you were feeling pretty good about their chances. Had yeah, I mean, seven. I felt like you know in every in in the games that they lost, it was just very minor breakdowns. You know, the game six in Oklahoma City, they had control of that game all the way through. Um, you know, they just kind of had some things not go their, go their way down the stretch. So I kind of thought that the Thunder would go in taking the game a little for granted, much like I mean, sorry, the Warriors would. Um, just like you would kind of expect from the some of the mentality of those guys, uh, the way they folded when they got down on the series. You know, they came all the way back. I thought they'd go in thinking it was in the bag, and I th- I, th- I think they came out like that. I think the Thunder outplayed them from the tip. 
Um, they they controlled, controlled the first half completely, and then there was just this this switch that was flipped in the third. And I, I don't think that the Warriors came out of halftime with an amazing game plan of how they were going to attack it. I just think that the ridiculous degree of dif- difficulty shots that Thompson and Curry have been throwing up all playoffs all year, all series, fell in the third quarter. I think that's pretty plain and simple. There's nothing the Thunder did wrong. There's nothing the Warriors did right. Those shots went in. And then obviously in the fourth and down the stretch, the Thunder certainly pressed. You know, they did exactly like you said. They stopped moving the ball, which is understandable. I mean, you're up 3-1. You had complete control. You're doing nothing wrong in the game, and the other team is just hitting everything. And it just puts a lot of pressure on yourself as to like, hey, we've got to make some difficult shots because they are. And you get out of the offense and you start turning the ball over and you start not moving it around. But, um, I, yeah, I, I just – and, I, you know, obviously I, I'm not – I don't have an NBA favorite team. You and I both know that. Um, regionally, just kind of with where I'm located in the Midwest – Kind of starting to to pull for the Thunder more. Not really. A, I wouldn't call myself a fan by any means, but certainly watch their games more. And I don't want to sound like I'm like this guy who's sore, sore loser, who's angry about their loss. But other than like that one stretch in Game Seven in the fourth quarter, I don't think they they really did a whole lot wrong in the series. And I don't know if that's just that much credit to the Warriors, who may be the best team in NBA history if you're looking at their record, simple and plain, or 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 what? But I mean, are you with are you with me on this? Other than the last stretch there in Game Seven, did the Thunder do that much wrong in this series? Well, I mean, just a couple breakdowns. I mean, I don't think their uh, their game plan necessarily broke down. I just think the execution wasn't there. Who played um, harder? Well, that's hard to say. I I because I can't. I don't know who played harder. Uh, for me, that's. But I told you this. When the game finished, these guys play a hundred times. I'm not joking when I think it'd be fifty to fifty. This, like now that I watch this, you could sell me on the fact that I think the Thunder may have more talent. Um, I think that the the Warriors just have a better system, a better belief. They're kind of a unity on personality. But the Thunder grew a lot, and that team is really young. And Stephen Adams and Cantor and Serge Ibaka. I mean, the the talent they have, Roberson. I'm tell, I told you this. Roberson will get defensive, all defensive team votes for his play in this series. They have a ton of talent. They are just figuring it out. And, and I think have, I think that's exactly it. You just nailed the head with it. As far as what changed for the Thunder from the regular season to the playoffs, it it, it wasn't necessarily Durant and Westbrook. Those guys have been there all year. Um, it was the role players. You know, it yeah. was those guys who, like the Dion Waiters. I mean, he was laughable at some stretches during the regular season with his decision-making. Yep. And he hit so many big shots in the playoffs so far and in the series. Uh, Roberson the same way. He couldn't buy a jumper in the regular season. Which game was it? He had like 21 points. <laughs> One of the blowouts. Yeah, I mean, so those role players came around. And I think it's funny because the opposite happened for the Warriors, you would say. Um, you know, Sean Livingston didn't have a great series. No, Harrison Barnes didn't have a great series. Heck, he lost his starting job. You know, that's kind of what I was. That's what I was looking at. Is I think that that I mean, one of the best weapons they have is they. I think the Warriors have the best complete bench. I mean, they have Maurice Spates and and Festus Azili, who are two big guys who could start on a lot of other NBA teams, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting over there on their bench, so they did get outperformed. Yeah, I thought the bigs got shoved around. I mean. 
Cantor and Adams are a true front that is going to be formable in this league. But another thing I was thinking about the other day is everybody wants this Thunder team to, to take this step, and they were there to take the step to go to the finals, right? But you got to remember, Kevin Durant is still very recently coming off a long-term injury. So it's not like this team is making deep playoff runs in consecutive years and growing. They weren't in the playoffs last year. You know what I mean? So it's not like they've been here every year building steps. You know what I mean? Right. So I just think it was just another time where a young group, I mean, the core of it is all below the age of 26. I mean, they're all still growing together, and they, they took major steps, and they took they took a bump on the head. But this team, with Durant staying there, and I think Durant should stay there, throwing out that hot take because that this team feels like the best it's going to win in the future. It will be the best team in the West next year, um, at least definitely going into the playoffs because they have the they have all the pieces to match up. I just think that kind of I hate to say it and it seems so weird, but it's kind of what you said. The shots just start falling. They really did. I mean, when Steph Curry can keep moving back and back and back. And in game seven, for example, where Serge Ibaka fouled him in the last few minutes, that long three, mm-hmm. that's a terrible shot for 98% of the league that would not deserve to have a hand up on it. You know what I mean? Right. But because he's so special and can spread them like that, it, I just think that he got better. I don't know if he was hurting, but him and the Clay, and Clay Thompson spread the defense and be able to shoot threes and which opened the lane for them and made – you know, Adams and, and Cantor more ineffective. I think that was really the change. It wasn't the scheme. It was just they came down and they started making shots like you said. But I, I'm i excited for the Thunder. Um, I was actually, I got myself fired up for a Thunder Cavaliers uh, championship series because I thought they were there. But no, back to your original question. No, I, I didn't think they really got out-schemed or out-played. I just think it was a thing of shots falling, man. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, I don't want to be misunderstood. But I don't want to make it seem like, oh, well, the Warriors just got lucky and were making, you know, ridiculous shots and the Thunder couldn't do anything about it. I mean, these are the Warriors who made those shots all year while they were winning <laughs> oh, that, 73 games. That, these were shots that just weren't falling through this series. And it wasn't like, well, the Warriors are just, you know, cold or whatever because the d- degree of difficulty of some of those shots they take when they get down and it's, you know, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it, – uh, Steph Curry was making shots, and Clay Thompson was making shots that, you know, probably less than fifty guys on this planet have the ability to make consistently. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Or, or at all. So, so anyway, that's, that, 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 we'll, we'll leave that one behind. Uh, we'll quickly move on here to to the NBA Finals. Um, big one, huh? I, I mean, are you excited? We've got the same thing as last year. Are you uh, you excited with the Cavs actually having their their full roster ready to go? And my goodness, rested up uh, compared to the series the Warriors just had to play. When was the last time the, the Cavs played? I think it was Friday. Yeah, yeah it's been a while. Um, they're going to be well-rested. So they get a um, six-day break going in. You're, you're, that's funny you asked me that question that way. Am I excited? Yes, I, I'm excited, but all the stuff I hear from Cleveland about how they're going to play Golden State does not make me excited. Um, and when I say that, I mean – What have you heard? I, Fill us in. Lou, Tyron Lou says they are going to run, run, run. They want to run the same pace as Golden State. They want to play the same type of ball. Last year's final, all they did was let LeBron James dribble the ball at the top of the key till seven seconds was left in the shot clock every time and let him go to work. There was no Kyrie. There was no love. And literally, LeBron James 
Tristan Thompson, Matthew Dellavedova, J.R. Smith, Timothy Mozgov pushed the Warriors to six games. Like they pushed them with that roster. So now we're all fired up and we got Kyrie and we got Love and they're going to be running gun. There's no chance they can outrun and gun this team. There's just no chance that they can do it. I don't think that game plan is going to work out. So I'm kind of afraid if they're going to push this narrative of we're going to run and gun and shoot a ton of threes, they may get blown out of the building real quick because that's I don't feel like they have the pieces to defend that. Um, the thing that happened last year, they they kind of worked their way in with injuries and losing Irvin and Love that that they gained you know, this awesome kind of defensive unit that was fantastic, um, that really carried them. But now they got, you know, a, a score in Kyrie and they got love. Both are not known for being great defenders. And they're both going to be asked to take a tall task on, on their defensive efforts. And I'm not sure how well they can do it. I would, I hate to say this, I would like to see Cleveland win solely off of that, that 30 for 30 Believeland. I mean, they've suffered enough. I'm ready for them to get one. Um, but, you know, am I excited? Yes, it's the NBA Finals. I want to see what – I think this is the biggest series of LeBron's legacy ever. Um, this will have a real thing on, on how he's remembered. But in the end, I, I look at this and I'm like, this is the five or six game series again. Like, I just – I can't you know, trust the Cavs. I – well, you know, my first thought process going in is there anything the Cavs can learn from what the Thunder just did? You know, and I, I think if, to me, it's doing the exact opposite of what you said their head coach, you know, says they're going to do. Yeah, to me, exactly. You know, to me, it's the ball movement the Thunder did. It's hitting open shots. It's getting your role players to contribute. And it's rebounding in its defense. Um, but, you know, quick side note here. I don't think people realize last year's series. I don't think they remember. Um First of all, the Cavs were up two one. Uh huh. Did you do you remember that? Yeah, LeBron. Uh, LeBron carried him to a win in Golden State. I remember him heroically falling to the floor because he was worn out. I think that game went to overtime. I the first two games that. of the series went to overtime. Yeah. So the Warriors won the first one. The Cavs won the second <coughs> one. So the Cavs were a coin flip from being up two zero, potentially three zero in that series. Yeah. And so they, I mean, so the Cavs come back. They win game three. The Warriors come back game four, blow them out by 20 in Cleveland. Um, and then game five back in, um, back in Oakland, the Warriors win by 13. Game six back in Cleveland, the Warriors win by eight. Um, but, I, you know, LeBron's legacy is definitely getting a little overshadowed here with the Warriors' success over the last few seasons. Um, did, did you know, I mean, keep in mind, Maybe an asterisk here because of what you just said. He didn't have the supporting cast. He certainly had to shoot it a ton. Did you know LeBron scored 44 in Game 1, 39 in Game 2, 40 in Game 3, 26 in Game 4, 40 in Game 5, and 32 in Game 6 last year? Nick, last year's final, he was historically great. He had 40-14-11 and 14, and 11 in Game well, 5. I'm looking at His averages were 35 8.8 a game points, 13.3 rebounds a game, 8.8 assists, and he is the reason they gave Andre Iguodala the MVP of that series because he slowed him. Yeah, he slowed him. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's, like I thought last year it was ridiculous to give anybody but him the MVP of that series, even though they lost. Because without him, 
it's a sweet no-brainer. I mean, he kept that bunch of guys in this. I mean, listen to these names. Mozgov, Smith, Thompson, Delvadova, Shumpert, James Jones, Mike Miller, Kendrick Perkins. I mean, he carried those guys. I mean, it's stupid. Absolutely just crazy, man. That that Those were the stats he put up last year. And that's what I'm kind of looking forward to again. But I think they're they're trying to change this game plan up with, with speed, speed, speed. But, yes, I didn't remember those exact numbers, but I do remember he had um, a historically great series against them last year. And something that does make me excited, as far as your excitement factor is, he's way more well-rested than he was last year. Yes, he is. I mean, he, he had a breeze through the playoffs. He is he is good and healthy and ready to go. And he's got got a lot of guys around him. So, yeah, Fan, that's Fantastic that's meme this week, by the way. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of memes. I'm sure you are as well. Are as well. It was, I'm sure everyone has seen it. It was on social media, and it was like the the players Jordan had to go through to reach the NBA Finals. And it's mm-hmm. like Isaiah Thomas, Patrick Ewing, you know, like all these Hall of Famers. And yep. then it's a meme of the players LeBron had to face to get to the Finals this year. And it's like Reggie Jackson and yep. DeMar DeRozan. <laughs> it was pretty comical to, to look at. But real quick, man, um, who wins? How many games? Well, you know, I was I wanted to mention something real quick. And I okay. wanted to ask you a thing. If they try to match up, you know, the lineup of death, which is Curry, Thompson, Iguodala, Barnes, and Green, right? Right. I, like I was trying to think, how small can they go? Because I, I think LeBron can eliminate Green, right? Like, I mean, I'm sorry to Draymond Green, but Draymond Green is kind of like a poor man's LeBron James. I mean, he's he Very doesn't have all the, he doesn't have the physical attributes, but he tries to play the same role. You know what I mean? Offense goes through him at the top of the key. He makes a lot of decisions as far as passing and stuff. So I was trying to think how best would they match up. Do you think – that we'll see a lot of Kyrie. Well, I think Kyrie will be on the floor no matter what. Let me ask you this. Do you think we'll see a lot of Kevin Love? The the max player that kept getting benched during the fourth quarter of the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, you know me. I I don't I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I probably watched about three games of Eastern Conference playoffs basketball this year. None of them seemed to be close and the home team won every single time. I I don't know enough of the Cavs rotation to answer that question for you. Um, you know, the, in a well, in a credible way. It is way. what it is. I think that I think that you're going to see more of the Cleveland Stars on the floor than ever before in this series, just because of what you know, the caliber of talent you're going against. I don't think you can get away with benching a Kevin Love like that. Um, you know, in in the the late periods of a game with his ability to open up the defense and drag people out because of his shooting ability and also his rebounding ability, but me personally, um, I think this is going seven. You do? I I, I, I do. Um, I, I pray for seven. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like even the series that have gone long for us in these playoffs, even those the games themselves haven't been close. But I, I want close games. I want it to be like last year's final. That's all I can ask for as far as the overtimes and all that. Make it exciting. But. I think that there's going to be a little bit of a you know a hangover here for the Warriors. I think they just went through an extremely emotional series, probably, probably the most emotional series for some of those guys in their careers in the NBA. Um, I think that can be applied to Klay Thompson and Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. But I think I th- that that, it's the most been tested. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they respond early in this in this Cleveland series, especially Game One. Um, 
Just but two I, days later. But I think this yeah. goes seven. Um, poor LeBron, poor Cleveland. I, I th- give me the Warriors in seven just because they, they do have home court and they do have a few more guys who I think can make some ridiculously insane shots 70 feet from the rim with 12 hands in your face. Um, so give me the Warriors in seven. I got I got two things I want to mention, and I don't know if – one is last year a little boost during the finals that helped the Warriors was David Lee's ability to score a couple buckets. He is no longer there. Great I just point. want to throw that out. And my next thing is, you know, I'm going to agree with you that it's going seven in the Warriors, but I think a key to this series, and I don't know how you do it, but you got to draw that flagrant foul on Draymond Green. If they can get him out of game. Good point. And, really good I mean, point. Do you not strategize towards that? I mean, you have a guy who's an irritant, Matthew Delavadova. Just tell him to go get in that guy's face and just annoy him. Because we all know Draymond Green is a hothead. And I don't think he can take one more of these, you know, crazy incidents where we don't know if he's really kicking a guy in the junk or not. An incident like that. I don't think he gets any more of those now. I think he, he has to set next time he does something like that. So it's just that I thought that should be part of their strategy. But like you, uh, I think they'll get it. I think he will get a flagrant foul and he will be out because I don't, he doesn't seem to be able to control himself. But give me the, the Warriors in seven. And again, just like you, I hope it's a, hope it's a close fun series. I'm really excited to talk about this series next week after we see, uh, see what happens, um, as far as a strategy and see if this, I mean, if they're going to play like the Warriors, we could be having some 130. Games up in the 130s, I mean, but which could be a lot of fun to watch. But moving on, um, something we talked about that came out last week that, I mean, every day keeps building on as far as the fire is what's going on in Waco, Texas, Nick. Um, a Big 12 team, the the Baylor Bears, who have become a, uh, a national powerhouse these last few years in football, has come under a lot of scrutiny. They, uh, they've had – they hired an independent firm named Pepper Hamilton to come in and, and run an investigation on what was going on with uh, the athletes and some sexual assault charges. And they, they printed out a 13-page summary, released it last week. And uh, the, some of the thoughts and summary of the, the events were pretty damning. And it cost uh, Art Browse his job last week, along with the uh, – cost the athletic director, the chancellor. It's causing a lot of people to, uh, to get the heck out of Waco, Texas. And uh, have you read over the report? I just want to know kind of your thoughts, uh, your thoughts on what happened, and you can fill in the listeners who uh, who haven't heard about it. What happened in Waco? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm going to give you just kind of the the briefing here. Obviously, I'm not anyone covering this piece or anything, so I'm sure there are a lot more details out there. But you know, basically, there's been a, a long list of, um, not, I mean, not a super long list, a handful of allegations against multiple. Baylor football players over the last couple years, correct? This has been something that's been going on for about last the last five. 18 months. Uh, it has really picked up in the last few years overall, correct? Since 2012. Okay. And, you know, and it was determined by this firm who went in to investigate that, you know, basically there was knowledge of some of these going on by some of the staff. Um, you know, who all knew specifically, I'm not sure. I'm sure the, you know, detailed report would know, but um, wasn't something where, again, I'm not going to state that somebody was necessarily trying to cover something up. Well, that, basic... that, that summary did. Right, that right, right. That summary right. did. Right. <laughs> but base, it was absolutely determined that 
you know, there was some information that was presented to staff members who chose not to come forward with it. Um, you know, whether they actually contacted these girls individually and asked them, you know, to heaven forbid, you know, not come forward with the information. I'm not sure. I'm sure the investigation will break it down, but at the very least they, they chose not to, you know, go to the authorities when they were aware of some things going on. Um, and like you said, I mean, a ripple effect has, has happened. Um, I think the Bryles firing was a shock to everybody. Um, it sounded like within the actual, um, you know, within the team, within the, the program there, it was really unexpected. Um, so that, that was interesting to me, but you know, the, the whole thing is the, the president who is Ken Starr, and I'm not sure if you knew this or not. Um, coincidentally, Ken Starr was the, um, he was, I believe he was the attorney who was investigating the Bill Clinton, uh, scandal that occurred with Monica Lewinsky way back in the, in the nineties. Did you know that? Yep, I'd heard and, something like that. Yeah, and basically, I mean, it was his investigation that led to the, you know, the House of Representatives representatives then voting to impeach Bill Clinton, um, which obviously I, I don't think the Senate got the necessary numbers for him to officially be impeached. But this star guy has had some, you know, some some run-ins with um, with scandals like this in the past when he was, um, you know, did some did some law work, and again, it's kind of coincidence that he was involved in one here, but instead of investigating into it. Uh, it was kind of, you know, the opposite that was going on. He was doing, he was, um, whether he was covering up himself, you know, I, I think he pretty much has claimed his innocence, innocence through this whole thing. Um, I think he made it pretty clear that he didn't know anything about this, but ultimately, I mean, you, you know, the, the main guy, your, your employees certainly reflect the, you know, the, the leader and he, he oversaw everything there. So you kind of, the captain goes down with the ship, so to speak. So he actually resigned as the chancellor of the university, I believe it was today or yesterday, but he was, it served, was today. He was canned as the president, so he served both roles as chancellor and president. But yeah, um, I mean, Evan, I, I don't want to get too much into you know a sex scandal here. It's an awful situation that occurred there, but you know, I think plain and simple that the president was hot, was canned first, and to me, the head football coach knows a lot more about what's going on inside his locker room among his players than the president of the university does. Um, so if the president's going, I think the coach definitely has to go again. I'm not saying Bryle should have been fired, but I'm saying if you fire the president, which you did, you know, then it kind of raises the question, well, this guy, you know, he has way more control over the program than the actual president does. Um, but Again, man, I, I don't. I mean, I don't know what, what. What What are your thoughts on this whole thing? Was it? Well, I mean, I, I, mean, a, hat, I, I don't want to say hats off to Baylor because no, know, I don't no like way. people. I don't like people getting rewarded for doing what they're supposed to do, which was no. cleaning house with all this junk going on. No. But at the same time, you know, in a world where people sadly value football wins and money, um, sometimes more importantly than morals, you know, I, I think it's always good to see someone taking responsibility for their action, especially somebody who, you know, has worked so hard to get where they are right now as far as a football program, um, facilities-wise, success-wise, um, for them to kind of take no hesitation to get this cleaned up right away, to me, um, you know, kind of made a little bit of a positive in this negative story. They, uh, it's a major lack of institutional control at Baylor. Um, and you, right now, Nick, we only have smoke. We have a 13-page summary. 
from Pepper Hamilton. We see all these guys being fired. We don't have the details of exactly what happened. We just have the summary. So what this tells me is it's really, really bad. It's a good point. Like, re- like really, they went out and hired Jim Grobe, who is, I, I, you know, most reports a great guy. You know what I mean? Um, West Virginia native. native. Yeah, Huntington, Huntington, Huntington native. But uh, he's a career loser as far as his record. I mean, he's really never had great success. Nothing, of course, like Art Browse. But they're bringing him just to kind of help, you know, give stability to the situation. Um, but, you know, this first kind of kind of rung your ears when there's a transfer from Boise State that came down and there it was trouble inside the, the Baylor football team. And he was kind of the first guy. And Chris Peterson, the former coach of Boise State, publicly said, hey, I warned Art Browse this guy was no good and he shouldn't take him on. And then Art Browse said, no, you didn't. You didn't warn me this guy was bad. And then just from there, stuff has kind of been like, what's going on? Because Baylor has never been a big-time program. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of took them losing their lack of institutional control, it appears, that correlated with how good they were on the football field. I mean, I think Art Browse is a legendary coach. I mean, I think on the field, X's and O's. But you're the CEO of, this, of, the, of your football team. You got to know what's going on. And it's hard for me to believe he didn't know what was going on. I'm not saying he condoned it, but he may have enabled it, you know, just by putting up with stuff like this and trying to let kids slide by and give them second chances. You know, some people are arguing that they fired a guy who wanted to give people who had trouble backgrounds second chances. That's a great way to look at it. I see it as maybe this guy wanted to take people in who could help him on the football field and they can get by for four years with whatever else happens. But in the end, I mean, a lot of sexual assault charges here, man. A lot of eerie stuff went down, and stuff will keep coming out, but every day somebody somebody seems to be stepping down even more. I mean, by the end of this, they're not going to have anybody on the football team. Um, it's it's just not a good situation. Yeah, and even I know, the, go ahead, sorry. Well, they're just trying to get – to me, they're trying to get ahead of the situation. Baylor at this point knows that they've really screwed up and they're just trying to get ahead of the situation so they can self-punish themselves because Lord knows what the NCAA will do to them. I mean, we don't know if they'll come down, they'll hit them with a hammer, or they'll just slap them on the wrist. You never know with the NCAA. But they're trying to self, um, self-assess self and then penalize themselves and hope the NCAA shows mercy in that way. So that's what's going on right now. But – the details, I don't know if we'll ever know. They'll probably try to keep them all under wraps. But it's yeah, that's where things said. get tricky because this is a private university. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure, you know, with the Freedom of Information Act, I'm not sure what we're going to be able to actually access and look into. But, you know, that's something else to consider is, you know, this is the largest Baptist institution in the world. You know, this is a very um, Christian university. They pray after every sporting event. Um, you know, their, their school motto translated from Latin is literally for church for Texas, you know, so this is something that, um, you know, what happened, which, you know, what happened certainly doesn't parallel with anyone's morals, but you know, this is, this is a, a Christian university that is very public about their religion as well. So, you know, I, it kind of makes sense and, you know, why they were very quickly acting with it. But I mean, between you and me and all, you know, <laughs> of our listeners. I, I've never been a fan of Baylor. 
never been a fan of Baylor. Um, this is a, a program that continuously schedules really, really small schools and then just runs up the score like crazy. I think we can all agree that. Um, you know, they score 70 on teams. They score 80 on teams. Um, I, I never was a was a fan of that. Um, never was a fan of how Art Bryles handled uh, the year they missed out on the college football playoff when he stood at the mic and said that the way to fix the college football playoff committee was that they needed somebody on the committee with a draw who was from Texas. Like, are, are you, are you kidding me with yeah. a serious face? He said that, I mean, this is a, this is a school where their football SID was fined for criticizing the refs. Um, someone who's supposed to, you know, remain unbiased and present information um, just never was a fan of Baylor. And, uh, you know, this kind of was the boiling point for me with, with their program and their, how they handle things and how they carry themselves. But extremely unfortunate situation, um, you know, kind of glad it's behind us. And like you said, who knows what we'll ever know from it. Yeah. So, Nick, I don't want to end our podcast on such a, uh, a sour note. So, you know, because we have – we are branding ourselves as we are going to be the first in rowing. We are going to bring you the top news. So I want you to follow up on what we talked about last week. And is Steinhoff still rowing to Europe today? Was Evan right? Or, or was Nick right? I mean, is the man ashore or is he, is he out there pumping away his little, little well, heart? You know, first of all, we were both making the prediction of whether, whether he would do it or not, right? Yeah. <laughs> whether he would still be rowing at this point in time, Okay. I believe you made the prediction that he would be dead right now, right? Uh, we, we said he would uh, – it just seemed crazy, yes. Okay, I said he absolutely would still be rowing. I mean, you wouldn't set out on a year journey and last six days. Um, What's well, 90 days. You know, that's like, that's like journey. getting ready to run a marathon and you only make it like the first half mile. Like, I'm pretty sure you train a little better than that. But you also got to bring into consideration, you know, if this fails – we're probably not going to hear about it for a couple months when something washes up on the coast of Africa. You know, there, we're it's we're not point. really going to have much contact with Steinhoff. Now he does have a radio that's that's you know solar panel paddle solar panel powered that he can call for help. Um, so my update as of right now is no update. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, Stein does not have an iPad with him, um, with Wi-Fi updating us each night on some sort of blog. There's nothing out there because it is a solo, unassisted trip. So there's no one who can report on this other than Stein Hoff, and he's a little busy rowing. So I, I've got nothing for you, man. Um, I'd love to tell you he's still rowing. Um, you know, I think if he made a distress call, I, you know, I think we would have found a report somewhere, but. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put them right around the Titanic sinkage site about right now, um, which would be just a couple hundred miles off the coast there. Um, that's where I've got them at from New York. Um, but excellent. I, again, we'll stay on this though. Oh, we're, absolutely. I, again, we're going to follow this. I just, you know, want to make it seem like, you know, the, the fact that there is no news doesn't necessarily mean that he's dead or alive. Well, we wish the best, but I, I we will know if Heinstoff, Heinz Steinhoff. Wow, that came off funny. He will uh, he'll make it to Europe or not? Um, but yep. definitely. Wanted, By the way, he's no is, way at the Titanic wreckage site. That that's like a quarter of the way to London. Um, okay, he can I mean, probably he said, still see land. 
It's, it's 90 days. I mean, he's still got to get there. So, 90, what, what? Wait, it was 90 days? It was that short? Yeah, I'm pretty sure you told me 90 days last week. Like three months. Did, isn't, didn't the Titanic take longer than that? And it I had, like, know. steam engines? It didn't have Stein engines, though. I mean, this guy is going to be pumping them out. Oh, uh, I served that one up for you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Let's get out of here on that note. It's a 3,000-mile trip. I mean, what, all Wait, a second. Do, Wait a second. If he, did, if he did this in 90 days, <laughs> do you realize how many miles he's rowing a day? How many? Actually, not as much as I thought, but still 33 miles a day. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, he can do that. Son's son's in shape. You're right. He's going to spend the next 90 days <laughs> completely isolated if he attempts the rowboat across the Atlantic Ocean. Wow. I mean, his pecs are going to be impeccable for a 70-year-old. I can't. I really hope he makes it. Oh, you got anything else, Nick? Let's I got nothing, man. Let's uh, let's enjoy the NBA Finals, and uh, I, I think we're going to be looking at a 2-1 series when we talk next week. Hopefully, hopefully we have three zero. Hopefully we have something good. We'll uh, for Nick. Uh, this is Evan, and for Steinhoff, we will uh, we'll talk to you next week. This was the the Reason Radio.